Well, the, uh, the topic for this morning is evangelicalism, old and new. And you might be wondering, what's, this, what's all this about old and new evangelicalism? And as I will show, there is a, both there has been an old and there is a new evangelicalism. And um, you might be wondering, well, why do I need to know all this? You know, you might be saying to yourself, I'm not an evangelical. I even disapprove of evangelicalism to some extent. I don't intend to become one, but um, I think it's important that we know what's going on in the world around us, know what's going on in the church world especially, what Christians are getting involved in, uh, how they think, what sort of visions they're getting, just so we know what's, uh, we sort of know how to, how to talk to these people and how to um, live in the world we're in. I, I recall in, in Chronicles where uh, it said that I was describing how the, how the tribes of Israel were gathering unto David as he was becoming king. And it says of, of the men of Issachar that they knew the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. They were people who, um, they were <coughs> people who knew what was going on. They knew what God's purpose was. They were going to play, play their rightful role in it, in the picture. Now, um, Let's see, the, uh, as I was, uh, oh, let's get organized here, about, you know, as I was a, when I was a younger Christian, I sort of knew about evangelicalism, knew about the 1800s and 1700s. I knew the names Jonathan Edwards, I knew who Charles Finney was, I had even read his biography. I knew that there were revivals in the past, um, and I knew that America had quite a, apparently a distinguished Christian past. And then, uh, maybe about 15 years ago, I began, I acquired this book called Reckoning with the Past. And it's a series of scholarly papers written by scholars of evangelicalism. There is, in the academic world, an institute for the study of American evangelicals. And it's, it's a, a group of scholars at different universities who get together, they write uh, papers, publish books, um, they do research on American evangelicalism. And uh, um, this really gave me some idea of what, what had been going on, what has been going on in the past. Um, for example, it's interesting to find out how people think, what sort of theologies there are, there have been a long time ago, how people think, what their visions are, uh, what they want to accomplish you know, in their lifetime. And so I really uh, you know, recommend that we be knowledgeable about the history of, of the church and about the church in America. And as I acquired different books on the, on the topic, I discovered that there are several types of people who write and research neo-evangelicalism. And one of them, one group is the scholars whom I just mentioned that there are, there's a body of them in, in America. They do their research, they're serious, they don't make a lot of judgments, or they don't lavish a lot of praise, they just put the facts out there, you know, a analyze the trends, come to some conclusions, they don't, they don't uh, judge or, or lavish praise that much. They sometimes do, but normally that's not what scholars are supposed to do. And then there are the fundamentalists who write about neo-evangelicalism, and I've got one particular book by, the, uh, by one. This is called New Neutralism, Exposing the Gray of Compromise. And this was written by a fundamentalist pastor who, um, along with his father, worked on the book and issued it every, every so many years to keep up with the, um, what was going on. The fundamentalists will very quickly reveal they have no love for evangelicalism. Uh, this, this book is a good one if you want to read uh, a small book about the history of new evangelicalism. This, I would recommend this one. The author has, um, <clears throat> the author puts a lot, of, a lot of historical data in this book. He also adds his own commentary. He's guilty of overkill in some places, but it's a good book for just learning the whole outline of the thing, what's going on. Okay, then there are dispensationalists who write about neo-evangelicals, and they will say that something very sinister is going on that the neo-evangelical evangelicals will be instrumental in ushering in the end-time harlot church of Revelation and the New World Order. 
And then there are the postmoderns who write about evangelicalism, and I've read at least, I've got one book of theirs. And they approve of the fact that things are evolving, that evangelicalism is evolving into something greater, something different, and they, uh, they seem to want to guide its evolution. Uh, they're looking for a utilitarian theology. And having, having listed these people, I would also like to describe my introduction to evangelicalism. By the way, um, let's save any questions until uh, I'm done speaking, and if, if there's time, we can, we can look, uh, take questions. But um, I'd just like to talk about my introduction to evangelicalism, which was in the spring of 1970, way back in a different millennium. And I, around that time, I had... I had been a disbeliever, a rejecter of the gospel, and um, uh, God was sort of de trying to erode my resistance to him, and I began to consider the gospel quite seriously. And I had gone to a Christian meeting on campus, and there uh, I had talked to a stu fellow student of mine, and he invited me to come to church with him the following Sunday, which I did. And, it was a church that was close to campus. It was across the street from my dormitory. And when I got there, it was a kind of a small church, Presbyterian. Um, I um, was sort of amazed to see that the church was packed full of students. Because after all, college students are not supposed to be interested in going to church. They sort of rejected Christianity. But here was a group of, a church was packed. The basement was, was was for was filled also, and this part the pastor at this particular church was um, a very controversial figure. He taught a, um, a a holiness doctrine, death to self. He was not had not been installed by this church. He was filling in because the church didn't have a pastor, and he was filling in. And he he was a temporary pastor for and it might have been a couple of years, a couple of three years. So I, I you know, went, went to this church, uh, and then I did become a believer during, I think, the following week, sometime during that week, and then I began coming to this church regularly. It was um, made in my church home. That was in the spring, uh, spring quarter, and I was there uh, during the summer session. Most of the students were gone, so the church was kind of pretty vacant. Uh, the regular people were there, of course, um, the older people and the, the, the younger married couples, and. And so then the following, uh, when fall quarter began, the pastor made this announcement that he was going to leave the church and find, uh, establish a new church on campus, which, which he did, and uh, saying that this is what God has called me to do, and if, if you want to follow God, you know, come with me, you know. <laughs> and which, which he did, and um, the following Sunday, the church was, was devoid of all the students, I don't think there were any left there. I stayed there. I, I did not go with this new church. I, I've never been a crowd follower, and so I stayed at this church. And I settled down in, into evangelicalism for several years, not consecutive years. I was also in a Pentecostal church for a couple of years, which was similar, quite similar. The Pentecostals, of course, have, they taught the gospel, they preached the gospel, but they also piggybacked onto the gospel they're teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I, I found life to be quite enjoyable. Uh, it was fun being with Christians, going to church. We, talk, we could talk about the Lord. We could talk about the Bible, pray for each other, um, people that were encouraging. And um, I was quite pleased there. And then several years um, after I had started going there, I was talking to one of the elders, and he, he, had be, he, he was not an elder when this pastor was there. He was an elder later. And he told me that some of the people in the church had approached the elders and they had said, they had voiced some concern about the teaching of this pastor. And the, the elder's response was, yes, but he draws in the students. So that was... That was the elders at work. They were not keepers of the gate. They were not guarding the flock. But the, the churches on campus do like students. They will do anything to draw students into their church. So, that, so uh, here was 
So there I came in spring of 1970. I came to this church as a young, naive, innocent Christian and being subject to the teaching of a false teacher. Now, I didn't, wasn't following that well. I wasn't really, I don't think I really grasped his teaching that much. And so I never, I was not harmed by it, but other people reputedly were. So and then I went on to the charismatic movement afterwards. So I have not been back to evangelicalism since then, but you know, I, I hear about it a lot. You're exposed to it a lot in the media. And I read their, some of their books and publications. So let's take a look at early evangelicalism in America. Uh, on, I've got a chart, a historical chart that's slide number two that you can follow, general outline of things. Evangelicalism has its roots in the Reformation. They are, it essentially believes in the gospel according to the Reformation. It has had some influence from pietism. It has had some influence from Puritanism, the Puritanism of New England. The settlers of New England had a vision of America being, a, the, a, or their, their settlement being uh, the city on the hill that shows the light of the gospel to the rest of the world. And evangelicalism has sort of taken over that, you know, adopted that particular vision of things. Uh, the American evangelicals were, um, there was a, Evangelicalism was a dynamic thing in its day. After all, here, was, here were a group of people building a new civilization in the wilderness, settling the West, building uh, farms, towns, uh, institutions, civilizing the wilderness, and the Christians wanted to take, play their role in it. They had, um, even while the Mississippi Valley was being settled, before it was fully settled, they already had a vision of missions and church planting and preaching the gospel in the American West. They were, uh, even before the place uh, area was settled, they already had a mi missions vision for it. So that's really planning ahead. Um, America, uh, evangelicalism was for all practical purposes the civic religion of America. America had no state church. And in general, I would say that probably most people had the, the Christian worldview at, at the time. You know, God exists, that um, there has been a fall, there, uh, Jesus has a role in the picture, he's a savior, and people had different levels of understanding of Christianity, and for some it was a worldview, and they were not personally committed to, to Christ. And there were many denominations of evangelicals. There was no headquarters, there was no Vatican, there was no archbishop, so it was all decentralized. Each, uh, several different denominations, I don't know how many there were, there were at least, uh, um, there were Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, um, the Churches of Christ, which split into, I think, three different streams later on. So there were multiple denominations. Uh, there was no central authority, and yet things seemed to as far as I can tell, things seemed to work quite well. There was active ministries. Um, the church had freedom. There was, um, there was freedom to operate. People were, uh, there was evangelicalisms who were committed to evangelicalism, to, their, to the gospel. And like I said, there was no state church that was given privileges by the state, like in the European countries, where if you wanted to organize a church outside the state church in some countries, it was illegal. So America had total, complete religious freedom. The, the doctrines of evangelicalism were not uniform at the time. There were variations as there, you know, as there are today. Uh, they would hold, churches would hold public debates at times at, where they would discuss an issue like uh, whether predestination versus election or, uh, I don't know, that's not, free will versus you know, an election. However, the majority of Americans were not churchgoers. The figures that I've sort of found regarding church attendance in, in the 1800s was like in a 35 to 40% range. So the churchgoers were a minority at the time, and of the churchgoers, there were a lot of other churches besides evangelicals. There were churches that had been brought over from Europe. There were Catholics, there were Lutherans, Reformed, Anglicans, um, 
many different churches had come over from Europe, so there were lots of churches and the evangelicals, if they were even half, let's say half, uh, that would, they'd be like maybe 20% of the population. Uh, evangelicals also met practical needs of people in their time. They were concerned about people's needs. They would, um, they would set up tailoring shops where women could come and earn money and do tailoring. I don't know just for who it was for, but they could give people jobs. They, um, they also would uh, uh, take either abandoned or orphaned children in the big cities and put them up for adoption to people, families in small towns. They were willing to meet the needs of people, of practical needs. Also, the uh, evangelicals were heavily involved in the abolitionist movement, and they were involved in, in the temperance movement. They were out to cure social ills, and they were involved in the tract, publication, literature distribution, and Sunday School Union and other, other outreaches. They believed that their efforts at reforming society would either usher in the millennium or some thought the millennium was already here, so therefore we can and must Christianize the world. So that was their eschatology, and they were, they wanted, many of them, I know many of them, I'm not saying they uniformly thought the same way about anything, but they did have a, a millennial vision for America. This is where the millennium would start and spread to the rest of the world. Okay, then, um, let's see. The chart on page three has some features of evangelicalism in the 1700s and 1800s. Uh, there were great awakenings. There were awakenings that brought in large numbers of people into the church. There were powerful movements of revival movements. Jonathan Edwards was, a, I think, the best-known figure of the 1700s. He was America's foremost theologian. We haven't come up with a better one since him. John Wesley was a key figure. George Whitfield was, I guess, the Wesley brothers. There were two of them. Charles Finney was uh, probably the best-known evangelical of the 1800s. Now, as I've been just reading, uh, doing some researching, Finney did not speak for all of evangelicalism by any means. He, he had a lot of, there were a lot of fellow evangelists who did not approve of his methods or his doctrines. To, to many people, you know, Finney is an apostle. To others, he's a villain. Um, but he was a controversial figure, you know, besides being the most, the best known evangel evangelist of his time. The Civil War came along, and, and then we find Christians in the South fighting against Christians in the North. It's tragic. Uh, later on, there were evangelists like D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, um, and so evangelistic work for revivals did continue. Teaching of evolution came along that troubled some people. And then um, the most, probably the real most critical, or let me organize my thoughts here. There were some challenges to evangelicalism throughout the 1800s. For example, you know, the earlier challenges were Unitarianism, Universalism, and Mormonism. Those really did not make a dent in the evangelical population to any great extent. Later challenges were evolution. Spiritualism, after the Civil War, spiritualism became popular in America, where people wanted to you know, contact their dead relatives, have seances. There was scientific research done on psychic phenomena at the time. Christian science came along. Uh, the greatest uh, challenge came with liberal theology, which began, came in the 1800s, late 1800s, continued into the 1900s. Uh, the, my slide number four has a general summary of it, just a summary of it. Uh, liberal theology came into the mainline Protestant churches. And as a result, the churches split into two camps, two groups, liberals and conservatives. As, as we all know, we probably all know this, the, the liberals deny the facts of the gospel. They just deny the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, his bodily resurrection, his ascension. They deny the gospel, but they substitute a social gospel that looks, they still believe in God, 
they uh, believe that Christ was a significant person in the overall picture, and we, we, need to listen, we need to listen to him to some extent. But they claim that people can be good and virtuous and progressive and not have these archaic religious beliefs. They thought that man was progressing, mankind was progressing past that stage where we had to believe in these primitive myths, these primitive stories. These people did not deny Christianity. They claimed that they were Christians. So they were not rejectors of the, the label Christian. They wanted to be, they claimed they were Christians. Some would call themselves liberal Christians. And they believed in the social gospel that the church needed to solve the social ills of the time, which there were many. The, um, the conservatives, again, they held on to the, the, the Bible. And some of them, many of them would become known as fundamentalists. There were, however, some people among the conservatives who were more of the reformed tradition, who maybe did not like the label fundamentalists, but in general, they're, they're usually referred to as fundamentalists. It's another term for conservative. On the slide number, on slide number two, I show on line two, I show the division. Conservatives were fundamentalists and possibly some were reformed. The liberals were sometimes called modernists. And there was a very, there was very severe division in the churches. And uh, it was very, uh, a very nasty battle. Na nasty battles took place in, in the, the mainline denominations. Uh, the liberals eventually, they usually won the, um, the seminaries and the hierarchies of the churches. The, some, many of the uh, fundamentalists or the conservatives did remain in these churches. Many people who were church members, went to church on Sundays, were probably not aware of what, what was going on above them in the, in the hierarchy, in the seminaries. They didn't really fully know what was going on. They stayed. Others became aware. They left you know, and insisted that everybody else leave if they were going to be true to, to the gospel. Uh, so, and so many of the fundamentalists departed from the liberal churches and they set up their own denominations. They, um, in some regard, they, they, they were under a siege mentality because they were now being opposed by the church world and, and the public at large sort of wondered about them. There was a stereotype of the fundamentalists that was prevalent at that time and which still is. So the fundamentalists began to feel like they were being excluded, they had a siege mentality, but they, didn't, but they did not retreat. They actually established new churches, engaged in evangelism. They established schools, they were often called Bible Institutes. So they were active, they, uh, they remained active. Uh, Charles Fuller was one very, probably the best known fundamentalist radio preacher. He had a very large following uh, in the American public. He was, people liked him. Well, he and his wife, he and his wife both took part in the, in the broadcast. So um, that's where, so by the end of the, in the, early, in the early 1900s, the battles had been fought. I think around in the 30s, it was in the Presbyterian church, and that might have been the last one, last battle in the denomination. Now, what happened as, as time progresses, what happened was that Many fundamentalist leaders be, were dissatisfied with fundamentalism, and they wanted to reform it. They, they believed that things had to change, and so they came up with an agenda or a platform, which is on slide number five. They, these people would later come to be known as New Evangelicals. They took the name, they, took that, they kept the name Evangelical and called themselves New Evangelical. If you like Greek prefixes, you could say Neo-Evangelical. Uh, their goals were to undo the negative impressions people had of fundamentalists. They wanted to repudiate separation. They believed that Christians should be involved in, in the culture, in the world, and 
doing things in the world. The fundamentalists were separatists. They, uh, they would not, uh, they would have nothing to do with liberal churches or Catholic churches or any other churches that were not, you know, uh, fundamentalists, Bible believing in their, in their estimation. The uh, new evangelicals wanted to regain power and influence in the mainline churches. And they want, so they wanted to get seminary degrees, become leaders and pastors in the mainline churches and steer these churches back to the gospel. They wanted to show concern for social issues, social problems. They, one of them, one leader said they wanted to have the, they wanted to deal with social issues the way the liberals do, but hold on to conservative theology. That's what one of, the, one of them said. They also wanted to publish sound theological works, theologies, apologetic works. They wanted to show the world that Christians could think. The impression that the, that the world had from many Christians was that Christians could not really think properly. They couldn't think theology. They were not thinking people, uh, that it was even wrong to think. That is an attitude that, that has existed you know, in, the, in the church world. But they wanted to show that Christians could articulate the gospel well, they could publish sound theology, they could uh, just show the world that uh, Christians think and could engage in scholarship. Another thing that they wanted to do was to save the Western world from ruin. And this was especially true after World War II when there was a threat of communism, the threat of nuclear war. They saw trends in the world, the way the world was going, or America was going, and they wanted to, they wanted to save America from ruin. Now, as I looked at this list, I, I realized that they didn't have evangelism or missions on the list, but I uh, just noticed that was missing from the list. Now, we can look at some names on the slide number six. I've got the, some names and events in New Evangelicalism. First of all, Fuller Seminary. Um, I was going to mention in my introduction that one of the reasons we need to know about things in the world is what if you have a grandchild, a niece or nephew, or a, a, a young person next door who is getting out of college and they come up to you excited one day and say, well, you know, guess what? I just got accepted at Fuller Theological Seminary. I mean, would we say to them, well, good, I'm glad you're continuing your education. Some people would just groan inwardly. Some would groan outwardly, I'm sure. So um, we'll, we'll get to, to Fuller uh, you know, shortly. The National Association of Evangelicals was founded in 1942. Billy Graham became, became prominent in the late 40s, launched on his evangelistic ministry you know, that has reached the whole world. The magazine Christianity Today began publishing in 1956. That was the, um, you know, the journal of neo-evangelicalism. Now, there, there were a lot of youth ministries that were started. Campus Crusade for Christ was one. Uh, Bill Bright, the founder, came to California and began associating with neo-evangelicals. He became a Christian in California. He began associating with neo-evangelicals, eventually went on to, to uh, establish Campus Crusade for Christ. He did go to Fuller for a while, but I don't think he graduated. And Campus Crusade became a very large organization that has, um, let's see if I can find my notes here, that has a, um, I think about 25,000 staff workers, a budget of at least half, at least 500 million, maybe even more by now. A very large institution, large mission, large group, campus group, mainly campus. There was a Youth for Christ, which began in, as the war was ending, and I've got a slide number seven is on Youth for Christ. There was really um, a revival among youth in the 40s, and much of it was you know, done by or led by groups like Youth for Christ. There was a real outreach to youth at this time. 
uh, Billy Graham was the first evangelist of Youth for Christ. There was a memorable event at Soldiers Field in Chicago, Memorial Day 1945, the war was uh, pretty much over with. That drew 70,000 people, uh, servicemen, nurses, people out, people were parading, and were in a parade or procession of some kind. It got positive coverage from the media, and fundamentalists or evangelicals, wherever they were, you know, these people, normally did not get good coverage from the media, but they started getting good coverage around this time. There were at one time about 500,000 people in attendance at Youth for Christ meetings around the country and more overseas in, among the military. At this time, there was a concern for, for the youth of the country. There was, they had problems with alcoholism, immorality, and crime. And the civic leaders wanted to do something about it, and they looked with approval upon groups like Youth for Christ. In fact, they were, I think, General MacArthur even wanted them to come to Japan. And that was a time when religious faith was considered a good thing. Religious faith could mean anything, Catholicism, Lutheranism, Judaism, Evangelicalism. It was considered a good thing and it was encouraged. Not exactly, that's not exactly happening today. Okay, let's, uh, <clears throat> now we can talk about, let's see, uh, let's see if I can organize my notes here. Um, we can talk about Fuller right now. Uh, Fuller was, was supposed to be a seminary that was going to prepare men for ministry in churches, of ministers of, the, of, of sound gospel. They wanted to send people, their, some of their people into the mainline denominations. There was, um, among the early faculty, there was already a division between people of neo-evangelical persuasion and people more toward the fundamentalist persuasion. So there was already a split among the faculty. One of the things that happened was there was a doubt regarding the inerrancy of the word of God that was prevalent at Fuller. At this time, some of the faculty were thinking that we really can't take, we cannot believe the Bible totally, the, Early Genesis and the book of Revelation are just, uh, we can't take them real seriously. They have truth for us, but we, we cannot believe in them literally. And so there was a division here among the faculty, and we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, what's, what's interesting is that after one of the first faculty members, and not in the uh, first class, the first year, was a Hungarian uh, theologian who was uh, a, student or a student of Karl Barth. He came in, he only stayed two years. He could not really, in good conscience, sign the, uh, the doctrinal statement. But he was, and he, he was actually, uh, had translated Barth's work into Hungarian. And he, there was some question whether he should even come on under the faculty, but he did come for two years. Um, and like I said, he couldn't really agree with the doctrinal statement of Fuller. Uh, but I, again, this was one, there was some influence, influence of Karl Barth at Fuller. Uh, Daniel Fuller, the founder's son, was, had studied under Karl Barth in Europe. I think the, uh, the seminary wanted to sort of bring in an international uh, figure like the, the Hungarian, it was Bela Vadash, I think it was his name, um, they wanted to have prestigious people on faculty. They wanted to gain their reputation, you know, in the church world, among the, the mainline churches. And, they, and I think Daniel Fuller was the one who said that you really need to have a degree, seminary, seminary degree from Europe to really have good standing in the American church world. Well, um, Another thing that happened was they, they began to integrate psychology with theology. They took an interest in psychology as a means to help people with their problems, and so they, they began, even began a school of psychology there to bring to the seminarians the, uh, the benefits of psychology. There was a, they began a school of, of missions, I forget the exact name of it, um, 
a mission school there was they used a different approach in missions. They wanted to disciple entire people groups rather than just call, call upon peoples individually to repent and believe the gospel. They wanted to use some technique to convince the leaders of the group, of the ethnic group, to uh, accept Christianity and then they would be acting on behalf of, their, of all their people. They established the Duplessy Center for Christian Spirituality. Now, David Duplessy was a South African uh, pastor who came to, uh, came to America. He was, he was very active in the charismatic movement. He, he uh, dialogued with the leaders of the Catholic Church about the charismatic movement. And, you know, he associated with a lot of these people. And so, for some reason, Fuller established the uh, Center for Christian Spirituality named after him. They also um, instituted later on a, a course called Church Growth Through Signs and Wonders, which was taught by, so it had been Peter Wagner, correct? C. Some, Peter C. Peter Wagner, right, who was one of the apostles of the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, probably one of the chief apostles of our time. And later on, some faculty members did become, were instrumental in the emergent church. So this is, you know, the, a brief, brief history of Fuller. If you want to read more about it, there is a, a book written by a scholar of evangelicalism. His name is George Marsden. The book is entitled Reforming Fundamentalism, subtitled Fuller Seminary and the New Evangelicalism. Now, this author, he has very documented the history of Fuller very well. He himself is in favor of reforming fundamentalism, which you know, he comes out, but he, nevertheless, he does, a, he does a good job of presenting the facts. Um, let's see. Now there's, what else do we need to look at here? Okay, there was, because inerrancy had been questioned in 19... 1978, they, some scholars, some pastors who believed in inerrancy founded the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And they, uh, they issued, a, they held a conference, they issued a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is available online. Um, one, of their, one of their people, Harold Lindzell, wrote a book called The Battle for the Bible. Now what's, um, okay, the, we'll briefly mentioned the Lausanne Conference on World Evangelization. The first one was held in 1973. They tended to lean toward the modern missions. Uh, I'm, I'm not that familiar with it, so I'm, I'm not going to uh, say a lot about that at, at the moment. Uh, Charles Colson founded Prison Fellowship. I think we probably all have an idea of what that is. Don't need to mention anything about it. Now, what was very, I think, very interesting and probably very, like, considered very troubling, what um, was slide number nine, the consultation on future evangelical concerns, which was, uh, there were two of them held in 1977 and 1979. I think the, the erosion of biblical inerrancy and the, the erosion of our, of our eschatology, or our, at least doubting dispensational eschatology, led some church leaders to wonder, what if? You know, what if... You know, this isn't really true. What if the coming of, or what if the coming of Jesus has been delayed? What if the kingdom is still a long way off? What, or what should we do in the meantime? And so they, they held a conference with me, not a large number of attendees, maybe only 20 or 30. They wanted to come up with ideas and strategies for what to do in the, uh, in the, in the future. Uh, and they, they got together, they compared, you know, they pr had presentations on, you know, data on church growth, ch trends in the world. Um, well, that's all very true, all very, you know, good information to know. And they, um, and they came up with some strategies, and they, they are described in a book that, that came out, that came out, uh, that they published. Now, the second one was the one that was really, I think, very troubling when I read about it. Um, 
was at the second one, they invited a new ager to come and address them. And this was Willis Harmon, who was um, very prominent in the New Age movement. He, um, he was actually, let's, let's, let's see, he was actually involved in experiments with LSD. And they were, this was back in the 60s, they were wondering about whether we could use LSD and other drugs like that to change people's minds, opinions, worldviews. And now this person, Willis Harmon, is invited to come and address the evangelicals. And the title of his talk was A Utopian Perspective on the Future. Um, I, I quoted a few lines from his, his address here on, in this slide. Where he is simply advocating, you know, let's um, let's ex let's look at altered states of consciousness. Let's look at all these different sciences, these different things, and try to get the, and <clears throat> try to um, use them to help us in our personal growth and formulating our worldview uh, and in just living life, coping with life. So he came to uh, address these people. He was, uh, there was not a lot of objection. There was some. Some people questioned whether he should be there or not. But he was not uh, denounced. He was not, uh, he was just sort of received and listened to. And well, and some people, of course, weren't that excited by him. But he didn't really cause any, he didn't cause a lot of objection. To, his presence there did not cause any major objection. Okay. Um, One, uh, I think we can conclude with uh, just a look at Francis Schaeffer. He was actually a key figure in this whole picture. And a, a while ago, I, Francis Schaeffer came back to mind, and I was sort of thinking about what he had said and you know, what he had written. And, and it occurred to me then that Francis Schaeffer's audience was the new evangelicals. I mean, the world, America at large, the church at large, but he came. To, he had been in Europe, lived in Europe for many years. He came to America with a message for evangelicals. And when I realized that it seemed like this whole thing came into focus, he came and addressed neo-evangelicals. Neo -evangelicals. He had been involved in the battle in the Presbyterian Church in the 30s. He had left, he and his family left America, lived in Europe in the 50s. They founded the Labrie Fellowship, had a ministry center there in Switzerland. And you know, invited a lot of people came, and young people especially came, and they listened to him, and they discussed where they were at. Francis Schaeffer presented the gospel to them, told them that it was that it was rationally, it was a rational thing, it was truth, and presented. He was able to present the gospel to, to a modern man, to modern people. Okay, uh, he. He came to America, I think in the 60s, began coming back in the 60s for ministry visits, ministry tours. And he rebuked America at large, and the evangelicals in particular, for their pursuit of personal peace and affluence. Now that phrase, when I read that years ago, that remained in my mind. And a lot of people have quoted that phrase from him also, his also. Personal peace and affluence was what evangelicals were seeking. He also was involved in the biblical inerrancy uh, controversy. He was a signer of the, uh, the Chicago Statement. He took part in the consultations. He really insisted that we, on the truth of the Bible. He wrote a book called Genesis in Time and Space, Joshua in the Flow of History. So he, uh, he really presented you know, he took a stand for inerrancy. He believed in a literal, literally in Genesis, in the literal creation, literal fall, and, and those things. He also said that at this time, the whole idea of truth was sort of uh, really in question whether there was such a thing. And Schaefer said that Christianity is true truth. Now that sounds a little humorous, but what he was saying there was that the word of God 
is not merely religious truth. It's not merely personal truth for you. It's not spiritual, meaning it's true in the spiritual world, but not in the real world. He simply said that, that the gospel the, or the Bible, the word of God is true. And we have to live by the truth, live in the truth. One of his books was uh, The Church Before the Watching World, where he said that the church needed to maintain a testimony of living and walking, believing the truth. He also uh, took Christians to task for not being able to give honest answers to people about, the, the, about Christianity, the gospel, the word of God. A lot of youth came to Labrie, to his fellowship, people who had been raised in Christian homes, but they'd never gotten satisfactory answers to honest questions about the, about the gospel. And Schaefer you know, rebuked the parents for, for that. Uh, he said that we need to be able to give honest answers, rational answers, to, you know, when people ask us about the Bible, about Christianity, about the gospel, they need to be shown that it is factually true, that it's real truth. Um, because obviously, the idea of truth sort of got, sort of got eroded in, in our time. That truth can, uh, is sort of your personal, your personal truth is true for you. It might be true for you, but it's not true for me. But Schaefer came along and really insisted that we have to believe in truth. Okay, I think that concludes, uh, concludes my talk. Uh, does anybody have any questions that I might be able to answer? Uh, again, obviously, the, oh, one, one thing I should probably say, in, um, on chart number two, or slide number two, I, I show on line four, the division that took place. Well, this is kind of interesting. The division that took place between the evangelicals and fundamentalists in the 50s. Um, Billy Graham, you know, when he was uh, getting started, he was very much encouraged by fundamentalists. And in the 50s, when he invited, well, he would host crusades in big cities, and he would invite the liberal churches to come and take part in the crusade. The pastors of these churches would sit on the platform, with, you know, on the platform, and anybody who responded to the altar call, if he or she was from a liberal church, they would be referred back to that church for their follow-up. Now, the fundamentalists really objected to that. It was even worse when Billy Graham in, uh, invited the Catholic Church to get involved in his crusades, and they really so they simply. You know, they warned him. He was warned by them, but eventually, but he did not heed it, and he eventually, the, there was a parting of ways where they would not, um, where even uh, fundamentalists would no longer have anything to do with Billy Graham. They would not support his crusades, and they would just warn people about even going there. They would tell people not to go there. So they, uh, so, so um, by the late 50s, there was a division, a firm wall between fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, what happened, another incident that happened was that when Billy Graham held a crusade in San Francisco, um, well, let me say this much, uh, Bob Jones University used to provide a lot, of a lot of staff members for Campus Crusade. Now in the late 50s, Billy Graham had a crusade in San Francisco and, and Bill Bright was invited to just sit on the platform. He didn't really take part in the crusade, but he was there on the platform when uh, Bob Jones University found out about that, they cut off any association with Campus Crusade. Um, they believed that if, uh, even if you're a good group, a good organization, and you have anything to do with neo-evangelicals, you've got to break off any contact with you, any association with you. So there was a very, like I said, a very uh, thick wall between fundamentalists and new evangelicals at this time. And on line number five on this chart, I've, for under evangelicals, I've got a whole bunch of adjectives that describe what's going on in evangelicalism. You know, I'm not keep really keeping up with all of these. Uh, Bob and Eric know more about, more about them than I do. But evangelicalism is in all kinds of different camps with all kinds of theologies. 
um, embracing paganism, embracing um, all kinds of well, pagan things. So that's the pre present state of evangelicalism. I'm not aware, I'm not sure if there's any evangelical churches that are just the way they were 50 years ago that have not changed. There could be. I'm really, I don't have all that, in, that kind of information on available, but and I, I'm sure you know, we've heard a lot about where the evangelical church is today, we, you know, here, in, here at the Gospel of Grace, so I think I can conclude, and if we have questions, I'll, yes. Well, I've, church has been on my mind for a while. I've mentioned a little bit to Steve Minty even some of my thoughts on it, but you know, I was thinking of the evolution, or you know, maybe that's a bad word, the change of the church over history, and I was, I was thinking about comparing that with the scriptures, and even looking at our church and thinking, what's the purpose? Is it evangelism? I don't personally believe so, but it's, I think the church, you know, we're, we're the body of Christ, many members gifted by the Holy Spirit, by God, it's his, you know, his grace really working in us, everything that we know of God is his, his gift and his grace. You know, everything we do of God is his gift and his grace. But I was thinking, you know, at, what's the purpose of the church? And, and I was thinking, you know, sometimes I feel as if we go off to the sides in, in trying to warn one another and trying to obey God apart from God. And I was thinking if, if even us would come together seeking the, to know God, to, you know, I know there's so many warnings, there's so many schemes of the devil, so many... Uh, side, um, I don't know, issues that are that are important. They're they're hard to you know they're impossible for us to deal with apart from God. But I was thinking, you know, what what is the purpose of the congregation getting together? <clears throat> A scripture comes to my mind, you know, as I've been pondering. Anyways, this one, it says uh, they get, they gathered for the breaking of the bread, the fellowship, um, and prayer, and the uh, apostles' teaching. So for, you know, essentials of the church, why, why we would get together, what, would we, what we would focus on. And I was also thinking, well, how would that look? And thinking about uh, Corinthians, how it talks about, you know, there's many different members, and it says, well, one speaking, another should, um, you know, the rest should weigh what's being said. It talks about prophets, it talks about, uh, you know, I'm not... I can't remember all the, the gifts it mentions, but it, it has this order of you know, many members each in turn uh, giving, and, and, and I was thinking, you know, how, how are we um, imitating the church? How are we, you know, obeying God and seeking God in, in truth and in his, you know, with his spirit? And I was just pondering that, and maybe you could ponder it with me. You know, how can we seek God? He really works among us. He really uses us. How, how can we... <coughs> Yeah. If anybody wants to add to that, I'm, yeah, the our the evangelical age, our, our age has been. You know, I've seen a lot of attempts at you know rethinking church. Hopefully, you know, either getting back to a more scriptural pattern or getting back to a more utilitarian pattern. There's been a, in a lot of uh, just a lot of. Um, thinking about what church should be like. Uh, I was in a group that was in a charismatic renewal years ago that thought they were getting back to, to true church. Um, that turned out not to be the case. But I mean, yeah, if anybody else wants to comment on it, just, yeah, Eric? Well, you know, Eric's point is excellent, you know, because this is, as you look all throughout all of the churches, you know, what is the purpose that we have to go to the Bible for that? No. And I'm no Bible scholar. <laughs> we try, you know. But it's, it's, in my opinion, the purpose of the church, we're the bride of Christ, okay? So there's a future for us. We know that. And that, we could talk for hours about that. But, but right in the here and now, it's, it's for discipleship. In other words, I come here and I learn biblical truth because we have teachers here so that's part of the and that's that's biblically true the church is here to oh. to you know disciple the believers and we're also to have fellowship and to love one another to abide 
together, abide in Christ, um, and, and then to go there for to, to 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 bring the gospel out. So it's three things that I thought of a long time ago in my amateur reading of the Bible. It's uh, discipleship or teaching. It's evangelism, and it's fellowship. And now. There's probably other things, but but you look at what most churches major in, and they major in all kinds of other things. I, that's just the way I look at it right now. The church has gone kind of wayward, it seems to me. Thank you, Steve, for all the hard work you did. You know, um, we really appreciate it. Um, Tell you did a lot of studying about this, put a lot of time into it. In answer to Eric's question too, how does what does that look like? I think about the Lord's Prayer where He says, "You know, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." So what's going on in heaven, right? <laughs> uh, uh, um, um, we know that God's being glorified, so we can glorify God, you know, as we're here. Um, um, we're in his presence, you know, seeing him fully glorified. So that's another thing to add to what Eric just, just said. But And how do we know what to do? Yes, it's revealed in the scriptures. That's, that's where God has revealed himself, his word, you know, what he wants us to do. And the, the, you know, the means of grace, Acts 2.42 that you quoted, are there. And we have all the gifts that we see in Corinthians. So it's in the word. And we study the word, and it, that shows us what God wants, and we, we, we hopefully are doing his will, you know, on earth as it's being done in heaven. Not perfectly, of course, you know, until we are glorified, we see him face to face. But uh, so I would just add that, you know, to the answer as well. Yeah. Stevie, thanks so much for putting all this together for us and helping us to see these big sweeping concepts and how they came about. One thing I was going to mention just about the people of God is you think about how the people of God, our understanding of who we are, think about the term saints, hagios, the idea of being set apart ones. And we're set apart initially through faith in the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen, but we're also progressively sanctified through the word of Christ through the scripture. So the scripture is absolutely central to the people of God. So the battle for the people of God and what the church is, is a battle for what we believe about the scriptures. And so I want you to think back about what Steve was mentioning with theological liberalism. They said our Bible wasn't true. And you had a reaction to that with a movement called New Orthodoxy. Steve had mentioned Karl Barth. Karl Barth's reaction to that was it doesn't matter if it's true. What matters is we have an existential experience. What Schaefer did is he, in a sense, cut the Gordian knot, and he says, no, the liberals are wrong in saying that it's not true, and the New Orthodox are wrong in saying it doesn't matter if it's true. It is true. And the reason it's true is because, not because we believe it, but because it corresponds to reality. And so the church is born out of the word, And what we are is to be the assembled ones who say this is true because it corresponds to reality, and therefore we study it in order to be sanctified, to be set apart, so that we can think as God would have us to think, that we would be not conformed to the image of this world, but we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So I just wanted to throw that out there, the three ideas. One, liberals said it's not true. Neo-Orthodox said it doesn't matter if it's true. That's really the roots of the emerging church, saying if we, we can't know if it's true, we'll just feel our way to God. But what we're saying and what the Bible's declaring to us is the Bible is true. It's true because it corresponds to reality, and that's what we have to hold firm to. Oh, Adam's coming. Just a quick little thought. Uh, when I was uh, involved with Wooddale, of which Leith Anderson was overseeing the National Association of Evangelicals, I had occasion to see the platform on which they were based and was just shocked, as you were saying. They, one of their first things was their tenets was about global warming. There was nothing in there about Jesus Christ. And, and then when I, when I became aware that the main fundraiser was an active homosexual, I made a big stink about it. And eventually he 
was um, removed from that position, but just that these things were so well tolerated. I don't know where it, what it is today, but that's what I was aware of. Okay, I guess we're the session has ended. Yeah. <laughs>